and welcome to Crime Squad Podcast, a podcast about true crime cases in Canada, both solved and unsolved. If you're a returning listener, hey squad member, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. If you're just starting for the first time, welcome to Crime Squad. I hope you'll join the squad and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episode uploads. Today's episode is a continuation of the series The Devil's Playground, which is a special interest series I'm writing about London, Ontario's Elgin Middlesex Detention Centre, which I typically abbreviate to EMDC. If you want the background on this story, I recommend you stop and go back to part one of this series. This episode will feature the tragic stories of four inmates who were remanded into custody at this jail. Michael Fall, Murray Davis, Ronald Jenkins, and Jason Justin Struthers. As a quick refresh for those of you who have been listening to this series from the beginning, since 2009, there have been 20 inmate deaths at the EMDC. The families and friends of these individuals are left with so many questions in addition to their utter grief for the loss they've experienced. I do want to warn you that this episode will contain discussion around substance use, suicide, and death. I always try to announce when this is going to happen and tell you how much time to skip forward, but I do want to make sure I call this out. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health challenges or substance use issues, there are places that can help. For instance, one site I find very helpful is wellnesstogether.ca. This is the site of Wellness Together Canada, where you can get the right support always for free. They have a ton of information on this website, and the focus really is mental health and substance use support. You can also speak to a counselor uh, right on the website. So just consider that if you need reference Um, this is something that could possibly really help out. All right, squad. So let's get in to today's episode. Imagine this for a moment, a pleasant warmth generating within your body, radiating to every limb and gently relaxing you from your head to the tips of your fingers, all the way down to the tips of your toes. As this happens and you begin to feel relaxed, and not just relaxed, but the most relaxed you've ever felt in your entire life to date you also get a little bit of a feeling of giddiness. You think you can hear things more clearly, the smallest sound once overlooked in your home, such as a tap dripping, becomes such a sensory experience that you can't believe you've never fully realized it before. Your eyes begin to droop. They do not want to stay open no matter how hard you try. You begin to sink into your couch which, by the way, has never felt so comfortable, warm, and inviting. You think you're breathing normally and everything is completely fine. 
But here's the thing, you aren't. What other people see is you acting confused and disoriented. You are having difficulty walking, talking, and staying awake. They see your chest is barely rising and falling with the telltale signs of breath. In fact, it seems to be a struggle for you to take in a breath at all. They notice your lips and nails are turning blue. They see a frothy substance coming out of your nose and mouth. You don't realize it, but you're making gurgling and choking sounds. If you're lucky, the person you're with will recognize what's happening to you. And if you're luckier still, they will have an naloxone kit handy to bring you back from the depths of your overdose. This is what an overdose on opi opioids is like. And in some cases, it doesn't take much to get you there. Opioid drugs affect the part of your brain that controls your breathing. When you take more opioids than your body can handle, this results in an overdose, which slows your breathing. What is naloxone? Naloxone, also known as Narcan in Canada, is a rapid acting drug that temporarily reverses the effects of opioid overdoses. It works by attacking the opioids off the receptors of your brain and it binds to the receptors instead, which helps block the effects of opioids and restore breathing. Naloxone cannot be used for any other kind of overdose. It is only effective in opioid overdoses. Pharmacies across Ontario provide Narcan kits for free because of the current opioid crisis. Michael Fall was not so lucky. In 2017, at the age of 48, Michael had been through a lot. Affectionately known as Mikey and the standard short form of Mike, he grew up just steps away from where I live now in the East End of London. Mike didn't have it easy, according to his partner, Lisa Err, who had known him since they were preteens. She told the London Free Press, quote, his entire world since he was a child was survival, end quote. He was exposed to a lot of experiences that are not great for shaping a well-adjusted human being. For instance, there was domestic abuse. There was alcoholism. There definitely wasn't a stable father figure. Instead, there was a plethora of men coming in and out of his young life. Some of them weren't kind. When I look at an undated photo of Mike, the only real photograph I can find of him, I don't know if it's just because I've had my own unique challenges growing up or if it's really there, but I feel a sense of sadness. He's actually quite handsome. He looks tall and his smile lights up his whole face. He has longish hair, just enough to make little wings above his ears. And I'm also a sucker for a backwards baseball hat. He has somewhat squinty eyes, but that could just be because of how large his smile is. And despite all of that, what I see is a little boy who could use some love and nurturing care. I see a child who needed a safe space, who needed to be told he could have a life that was different than the life he witnessed being lived out. Maybe I'm projecting, but I've done a lot of inner child work myself, and I personally think I can recognize this kind of trauma in others.
If you can imagine what life would have been like. Being present as a child to domestic violence must be heartbreaking. Can you imagine how powerless he must have felt? It's not surprising to me that, as the testimony goes from Lisa Err, Mike began hanging around a tough crowd when he hit his teen years. As a result of this, he joined the vicious cycle that many of us do when we're exposed to childhood trauma and emotional neglect. A cycle of crime, detention, and release. A cycle of addiction, a way to numb the pain, a way to feel something, a way to experience freedom. Despite all of this, people in Mike's life felt well-loved. He was friendly and had a great sense of humor, despite his challenges. In the year 2000, Lisa gave birth to a son, to Mike's son. And Mike took to fatherhood in a way he'd never taken to anything else. It was clear how much he loved his son and how hard he tried to be involved in his life. Lisa would only allow Mike to see his son if he was sober and stable, and he tried his best to stay that way so he could be an involved father. I know not why Mike was incarcerated at EMDC. I don't know if he was awaiting trial and hadn't made bond, or if he was sentenced to serve time there. I don't know the nature of the crime or his charges. But what I do know is he was at the EMDC in July of 2017. And on July 30th, 2017, a Sunday, life would be forever altered for not only Mike, but his family, for his son. How many of us can sit in our houses with our belief systems behind computers or phones and judge? In my opinion, most of us. The comments I've seen on posts about the overdose deaths at EMDC can be so cruel and cutting. People saying things like good riddance or if you couldn't handle jail, why did you do the crime? I think the key here, though, that people are forgetting, or maybe they just don't care about behind their keyboard warrior personas, is that if it were that easy, society wouldn't be so crime-ridden. There are so many circumstances that people who haven't lived them would never understand. If you never had a positive role model, how would your personality be shaped? If you saw only anger, substance use, and neglect growing up, Is it safe to assume you'd be a well-adjusted person? Likely not. I don't know anything about Murray James Davis's life, but I do know in 24 years of living, he experienced a lot more than many people ever will in that same lifespan. I don't know Murray's date of birth, but I know when he was 24 years old, he was serving time at EMDC for criminal harassment. I don't know about you, but 24 sounds so young to me. In what I consider a short lifespan, court records indicate he had faced dozens of criminal charges, the majority of which took place in London, Ontario. Some took place in Goderich, Ontario. The charges ranged from arson and assault with a weapon 
to carrying a concealed weapon and robbery. I found an old profile picture of him on Facebook, and in the picture, I see a big muscular guy with handsome features. He has broad shoulders and a broad chest with multiple tattoos on his arm and one across his chest that reads, God forgives, I don't. He has a round face, but everything appears to be perfectly proportioned. From prominent eyebrows to large eyes, shapely nose and full lips, there is definitely a certain air of intimidation about him. Maybe it's his facial expression, which is cold and stony. His hairstyle suits him well. Shaved on the sides and back with sharp edges and worn long and slick back on top, it's almost a military style haircut. Despite all of his previous arrests and issues, he had a family and friends who really loved him. His sister remembers him as a great brother and illustrated that she didn't care that he'd been in and out of jail. He was her brother and he wasn't defined for her by the things he'd done. In mid-August of 2017, despite being in lockup, Murray was in good spirits. He was going to be released the morning of August 18th, 2023, according to former inmate Terry Bowden. The morning of August 17th, the guards would hear Murray's cellmates screaming for help. Maybe Murray was celebrating his upcoming release, or maybe he was just upset because, or he was just using because something was available. But unfortunately, Murray overdosed on what was later determined to be fentanyl. He was declared dead on the morning of August 17th. Murray's mother and father were understandably completely devastated. His mother, Lisa, wants to see change. She told CBC Canada, quote, I don't understand how these drugs are getting into the jail. Why do they not try to stop it? There's got to be something they can do. End quote. And there are definitely things that could and should be done. But the jail has the right to decide which recommendations it wants to adhere to or not. One of the recommendations put forward after a coroner's inquest was that the EMDC should install body scanners. The scanners are used to scan inmates coming into jail and will scan the entire body of each person to check for weapons or drugs. The scanners were promised to EMDC by the Ontario government in 2016, but numerous delays and in installation occurred. The jail finally received the body scanners, which became fully operational as of March 31st, 2018. Of course, like anything, there are concerns that the scanners, which were actually installed across multiple incarceration facilities in Ontario and cost $9.5 million to install and then further maintain, aren't necessarily going to prevent drugs from getting into the jail. The very legitimate worry is that the technology may not actually be very useful when it comes to screening for op opioids of all things. Opioids are much harder to detect than drugs like pot. When you bring in small amounts of drugs that are small to begin with, think the size of a pill, a body scanner can't necessarily detect that. Murray, at the age of 24, tragically lost his life to the silent killer fentanyl. He had so much ahead of him and left so many behind. One of those he left behind was his girlfriend, Brittany. 
And remember, it's easy for us to judge what the media portrays as a hardened criminal, young but ruthless, who died, died while in custody. But Murray clearly touched Brittany's life in a way she will never forget. I found a public Facebook post from her posted on August 28, 2017. In it, Brittany writes to Murray. She says, quote, You are my very first love. You are my life, my world, my entire universe. You were the one who taught me how to love, show me to look at life in different ways. I saw the world in black and white until God gave me you, then I saw in color. Since the day I met you, my life has gotten a lot better and continues to get better. Until I found out what happened. If only I knew that you were going to be taken, I would have loved you deeper. I'd have tried harder. I would have laughed harder. I wish you were still here to hear your voice. I missed you, Marie. I love you since the very first day I laid my eyes on you. And I love you to the day my eyes close. I'll never forget you or any of my memories. I hold them the very closest to me. I don't think I'll ever be okay because it's not okay that you were taken. But I know one day I'll see you again. Everything reminds me of you, which is good and sad. I'm grateful for having you in my life. You touched my soul in a very special way. I'll love you forever. Watch over me, you handsome little angel. End quote. While the judgmental person in you may think, this guy deserved what he got. If you don't mess with fire, you won't get burned. Just try to remember, he was somebody's son, best friend, brother, first love. He had the capacity to love and feel just like any of us. That's got to stand for something. This next case is a tough one because I really struggled to find additional information. All I really found was just one article, and I don't have many other details. Saturday, December 8th, 2017. Ronald Jenkins, age 49, has been arrested on domestic assault charges, specifically one count of assault, uttering threats of death and bodily harm, and four counts of assault with a weapon. The weapons were identified as being a pen, a belt, a guitar, and a pipe. The charges were all for assault against the same women, woman, and the incidents had occurred in 2012, 2013, and 2017. Ronald is taken to the Elgin Middlesex Detention Center for the weekend and was told he would be appearing in court on Monday, December 10th. The charges against Ronald, however, were actually withdrawn on December 9th, after just one day in custody. But the charges wouldn't be withdrawn because Ronald was determined innocent and was let go. No, the charges would be withdrawn because the morning of December 9th, 
Ronald was found unresponsive in his cell. The circumstances of Ronald's death were unknown and weren't actually released from what I could find. Police did confirm that foul play wasn't suspected and sources revealed Ronald had committed suicide. According to the London Free Press in a December 2017 article about Ronald's death, there has been research conducted across the world that shows new arrivals to jail are susceptible to suicidal thoughts. This is especially prevalent in first-time inmates. Is this why Ronald reportedly took his own life? Although it has never been confirmed, the method in which Ronald ended his life, what we do know is that this is not the first time a suicide has occurred at EMDC. What we also know is that inquests conducted for other jails within Ontario have shown there is limited suicide screening tools, as well as limited use of segregated cells, which are supposed to be used for people who need suicide watch. The question is, if Ronald had have had proper screening, could his death have been prevented? We will likely never know. Justin Struthers entered this world in 1988, and sadly, he would already have a difficult struggle ahead of him, just as a newborn infant. Justin was born addicted to drugs because of his mother's frequent drug use while pregnant. Justin would be taken from his biological mother and was raised by his loving grandparents, Judy and Glenn Struthers of Goderich, Ontario. They could provide him a stable and loving environment in which to thrive. And Justin did have a lot of great qualities about him. He wanted to be a barber. He loved to draw and he had plenty of friends. He was a generous person and he was known to be fiercely loyal to his friends and family. He also wore his heart on his sleeve and was very sensitive. He just loved everyone. But Justin would also face challenges. Justin struggled through mental health challenges and a number of long-term health problems as he grew from boy to man. As a teenager, he was hospitalized for self-harm. I know too much about self-harm more than I wish I did. I struggled myself with self-harm from the age of 12 to the age of 33. It's difficult for me to say that, but it's the reality of my complex PTSD diagnosis and my own childhood trauma. Thankfully, I too got assistance to help me overcome those desires and the need to hurt myself. But this says something about mental health issues and that mental illness can affect anyone and everyone. It doesn't discriminate. I sympathize with Justin very much and hearing his story breaks my heart. Justin always struggled with depression and feeling like he didn't have a purpose in life. He often felt overwhelmed. In 2014, Justin had his first experience with law enforcement and incarceration. He was involved in a police chase in Huron County in January of 2014. Caught after evading police, he was found with drugs and a stolen gun that he was planning to use to take his own life. 
For this crime, he was incarcerated for three years in Millhaven Institution. While locked up, Justin's former girlfriend, Amber, gave birth to twin girls. Justin was the father. Amber recalls Justin was a doting father, even from jail, and would do anything for his girls. She told Global News, quote, even from jail, he was always sending them cards and gifts. Whatever he could possibly do, and while he was gone, he made sure they still had everything that they needed. He loved them so much, end quote. I found Justin Struthers on Facebook, which seems to be where I can find out a lot about people. And while I'm grateful for this because it helps me to understand the people I'm reporting on, just remember to check and update your privacy settings regularly, people. It's clear from looking at his Facebook posts that Justin is a troubled individual. In pictures, he's definitely what I would call conventionally handsome. He has a generically handsome face tattoos, which I'm always a fan of, and appears clean-cut and well-groomed. There are so many posts that point to a struggle with depression. One such post is posted November 27, 2017, where Justin writes, quote, I am a piece of shit. The only thing I've ever been good at is hurting the people I love the most. Why? I don't know. People like me aren't supposed to let others in. I'm so sorry, end quote. In December of 2017, Justin could feel a mental health crisis coming on. At the age of 29, he'd learned to recognize the signs. And he knew he needed to do something about it. On December 23rd, 2017, Justin's grandmother, Judy, could also tell something was wrong. She arrived where Justin was staying in Goderich to take him to a small town called Seaforth, where he would pick up his methadone. Methadone is a prescribed drug treatment that helps people recover from narcotic addiction. Judy recalls Justin seemed paranoid and was acting erratically. He seemed to be angry, manic even. He threw his laptop and backpack into a snowbank before leaving the house and running down the street without a code or his cell phone. Judy also told the London Free Press that Justin didn't seem to know who she was and he was acting like he was in a state of psychosis. He seemed vacant somehow. It was the last time Judy would see her beloved grandson alive. Justin ended up at his girlfriend's house where he called 911 for assistance. He wanted to get help for himself. He was picked up by police and taken to the hospital in Goderich, where he was reportedly checked by hospital staff and promptly released. Justin was agitated that nobody seemed to be taking him seriously, and he was very upset because he tried to do the right thing by going somewhere safe where he could be assessed and treated. During the struggle of him being led out of the hospital by police, he reportedly took a swing at an officer which was later deemed to be assault. He had a court appearance on Christmas Eve, December 24th, the Sunday, where he was then taken to, into custody and transported that same day to Elgin Middlesex Detention Center. Here's the thing though, just before noon, December 26th, just three days after Justin was admitted to the EMDC, he is found unresponsive in his cell. 
He was reportedly found with a blanket wrapped around his neck. Police, of course, ruled this as a suicide and said that no foul play was suspected. But Judy and Glenn have other thoughts. After all, they saw Justin's body. They saw the marks on him, the bruising on his face, the injury to his head. They were told Justin had been in a fight with other inmates the morning of December 26th, where he'd been kicked in the head, and guards told her he'd been checked by medical staff, but deemed okay. He was returned to his cell. Just hours later, he was no longer alive. You can make your own conclusion, but based on what we've heard in previous episodes, do you think there's more to the story? Or did Justin end his own life? Let me know in the comments on my Instagram page at Crime Squad Pod. Rest in peace, Justin. May you find peace in death that you didn't have in life. I found a piece of poetry that Justin wrote on Facebook, and I'd like to share it because it's very well written, and I think it provides a very realistic view of what it's like to struggle with mental health. The post was created December 2nd, 2017. In just 24 days, Justin would be gone. My family don't understand what I go through. Underdiagnosed for 20 years ain't never broke through. You ever been in such a fog you don't know you? Never being able to do the shit you're supposed to? I wouldn't wish it on anyone that I'm close to. Wouldn't wish it on anybody that I'm opposed to. There's not an accurate diagnosis to show you. Basic neurobiology isn't close to it. I'm watching life as a spectator. I can't help myself even though I possess data. It's not a part of my spirit to want to test nature. You think you know what I'm feeling, cousin, then let's wager. I'm having trouble retaining new information. Familiar scenes starting to look foreign, derealization. Everybody tired of being patient. Mama wondering why her baby crying in the basement. Constant rumination just exacerbates it to the point where I can't even barely narrate it. I've had doctors tell me that my mind is fascinating, but they can't tell me why the sickness has been activated. My head don't work, the meds don't work, but I don't wanna be dead, dead don't work. Sleep's the cousin of death, the bed don't work. Maybe I'd rather be dead, dead don't hurt. Realization of an inherent emptiness. Maybe that's another sin for the pessimist. Possibly I am a djinn with the exorcist. I've fallen because I've been on the precipice. Maybe it's my mama's possible regret. Maybe it's a neurological neglect. Maybe it's the reason why water's wet, the angular gyrus and where the frontal lobe connect. But maybe I'm being too complicated for you. Maybe I should just be calm and explain it to you. The psychiatrist thinking they could fool you. Paxil, Zoloft, Prozac, Ciprolex is just wasteful to you. I've tried meditation, tried to sit in silence, but how the fuck that help a neurochemical imbalance? Why would you tell a person that they were childish without an understanding of the pain that they surround in? I always feel foggy somatic detachment. It's like my body isn't connected to actions. It destroys everything that's affected the fragments. I don't have nothing but senses and sadness.
So squad, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the special series, The Devil's Playground Part 3. Thank you, as always, for listening in. And remember to join the squad if you enjoy the content I'm creating. A rating wouldn't hurt either. I've added a way for you to buy me a coffee through Linktree on my Instagram page. Follow at Crime Squad Pod and click the link in the bio to give me a tip, view Crime Squad's Facebook page, or send me an email. I'd love to hear any recommendations you may have for cases you want to see covered. I also want to mention that this episode marks the end of season two of Crime Squad Podcast. I can't believe it's been this many episodes and I wouldn't be able to do it without all of you. I just recently hit a huge milestone with over 1,000 separate plays of this podcast. I never thought in pursuing my passion project I would have my episodes played this many times. And now I'm getting greedy. Tell your friends, your family, your coworkers, tell them all so they can tune in and join the squad just like you. I will say this as well. This pregnancy isn't getting any easier. And since we've reached the end of season two, I'm going to take a small break. You can tune in to episode one of season three on August 4th. I know, I know I'll miss you too, but stay in touch on Instagram or by email. You know how to find me. Most of all, I want you all to remember, stay safe and be kind to each other. You never know whose day you may brighten with just a smile.